Have you ever wondered why anyone drinks Malort? Or if there are actually lobsters in the Chicago River? Then listen to the Curious City podcast, where we answer all your questions about Chicago and the region. WBEZ's Curious City is part of the NPR network and available wherever you find your podcasts. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. If you've been tuning into Reset this week, you've been catching our series Closing the Gap, Food Insecurity. As many as 50 million people across the country are facing food insecurity. That's when you don't know where your next meal is coming from, and you don't have enough food in your household to sufficiently nourish each person who lives there. Earlier in the week, we heard from an academic on why hunger is on the rise during the pandemic. During COVID, the main things that are driving this is higher unemployment rates amongst those who are most vulnerable. Yesterday, we heard the voices of those who are being hit disproportionately by food insecurity during the pandemic, women with children. When you're a parent, you'll do whatever you have to do to make sure your kids are fed. We all know that food pantries are doing good work on the ground in neighborhoods, getting meals to those who need it and even advocating for the bolstering of federal aid programs like food stamps or SNAP. Now we're going to hear from someone who argues that more food is not the answer to solving hunger. Joining me now is food security activist Andy Fisher. He's the author of the 2017 book Big Hunger, the unholy alliance between corporate America and anti-hunger groups. He's also the executive director of EcoFarm, a nonprofit that promotes sustainable farms and food systems. Andy Fisher, welcome to Reset. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Sasha. Now, we've heard, Andy, about the military-industrial complex, but tell us what the hunger-industrial complex is. Break it down for us. Sure. Just as the military-industrial complex kept the war machine going, the hunger-industrial complex keeps the anti-hunger machine going. It's a web of connections between anti-hunger groups, government, and corporations, especially in the food and farming uh, sector, uh, that is self-perpetuating. And it's those deep connections that help to perpetuate the current inadequate system and the problem of hunger. So probably the best way to describe this is is to give you an example. And and Walmart is the example I like to use. Uh, Walmart is famous for paying its workers very low wages, and it actively encourages them to get onto SNAP to take good food stamps, or it actively encourages them to go to food banks to help them um, make ends meet. And it's also famous for not giving the workers full-time hours so folks don't get benefits. So Walmart at the same time is one of the biggest donors to the anti-hunger community. So it's providing tens of millions of dollars and hundreds of millions of pounds of food to food banks so that they can address the issues uh, and reduce their waste, reduce their tipping costs, but also make sure that they're there for their workers to... uh, to have access to. At the same time, Walmart is the single largest redeemer of food stamps in the country. Uh, So it redeems one out of every five or one out of every six uh, food stamp dollars. So Walmart, while it's, you know, it's encouraging its workers to get food stamps, it's advocating for those food stamps so it can continue to earn billions of dollars off of that. But it also is getting earned media. Every time it makes it a donation to the local food bank, it's getting an article in the newspaper saying it's a hunger fighter Mm -hmm. rather than a hunger causer. Uh, so that's one real clear example of, of how that works. And right. the way these connections also work, I took a look at the, who's on the board of, of food banks, and I found that about one quarter of the board members of food banks in this country work at a Fortune 1000 company, as compared to almost nobody who works at a, at a labor union on their boards. Mm-hmm. And most of the food banks in this country won't promote policies to end hunger, uh, like minimum wages. They'll stick to politically neutral stances like increasing SNAP. And the reason they do that is because increasing wages is going to be counter to the interest, the business interests of their board members. So you've also said that the government has a stake in this too. How do they benefit from hunger? 
sure. The government, for example, uh, will provide millions or billions of billions of dollars for the Trump administration into bolstering food banks. Um, and it's a way for them to neutralize any support for the SNAP program. They can point to the efforts that they're doing to pump money through the food bank system as an excuse for not bolstering those programs to which there is a political opposition to. Now, I just want to note in response to what you had just outlined for us, you know, a, a U.S. Government Accountability Office report did find uh, that Walmart and other corporations like McDonald's are among the top employers of SNAP recipients. So their employees are, are really likely to be on SNAP, as Andy just pointed out for us. Now, Andy, we also see a wide racial disparity when we look at who is impacted the most by food insecurity and hunger, right? So how do we make the food system in America more equitable? Where do we start? I think we need both race-specific and race-neutral policies. We need to be having the discussion that we've been having in this country, uh, especially in 2020, about the impact of structural racism and why particularly people of color are uh, suffering more from rates of hunger than white people are. But we also need policies that lift the boats for everybody. We need, if we just take a look at the food industry, for example, the food industry has the highest percentage of people of color employed of of any sector. It has some of the lowest wages of any sector. Um, Farm workers, for example, have been typically excluded from labor laws, so they're not protected. Um, If we take a look at who's employed in meat processing plants, it's often low-wage Latinos or other folks from communities of color. So, and there's little enforcement of labor laws within processing plants or safety laws. And then even if you look at the tip minimum wage, in Illinois, the tip minimum wage is $6. So all employers have to pay their servers at 6 bucks an hour with the assumption that they're going to make the rest up to minimum wage uh, through their tips. So by raising that tip minimum wage, which is as low as $2.13 in many states, if we raise that up to the full minimum wage, we're going to be able to improve the food security of those workers. You've said, Andy, food is not the solution to hunger. So my question then is, what is? What's the solution to food insecurity in this country? Justice. Um, Charity solves hunger, you know, just like a Tylenol solves a headache. You know, you can do it a few times, but at some point, if you keep having headaches, you should go to the doctor and you should look at what those root causes are. So hunger is a symptom of poverty. If you dig down into it, why are people poor? They're poor because of racism in this country, because of sexism, because of misogyny, you know, and ultimately because of an economic system that exploits labor. Uh, so if we're going to address hunger, what we really need to be doing is reducing wealth and income inequality and doing the, the hard things rather than the easy things. You know, a place that has been doing that well is Scotland, actually. Scotland, okay. the government of Scotland has made a policy statement that they do not want food banks in, in their country. Uh, they're giving cash grants out instead of asking people to go to food banks. They're using lottery funds to fund community building projects like community gardens and community cafes. They're trying to break down those myths of why people are poor. You know, that we have in this country this idea that people are poor because of their own moral failings. And they're trying to break down that myth by linking up policymakers and especially women uh, who are poor through something they call the Poverty Truth Commission. And so that those commissioners, those truth commissioners are able educate the policymakers about okay. the reasons and their life experiences. So that kind of comprehensive approach I think, is what we need to be looking at in our country. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, thinking of those places like Scotland, which you say are getting it right, what specifically do you think policymakers could be doing here? What more could they be doing? Well, first of all, I think we have to acknowledge that people have a right to food in this country. And the United States is 
one of the few countries that has never signed on to a UN covenant on social and economic rights. So we need to be establishing that we have a right to food, and that right to food does not mean uh, getting it through charity. It means getting it through ways that are dignified, earning wages, and when people are absolutely vulnerable and need uh, the support programs that the government provides, those need to be strong and adequate. So what the government needs to be doing is things like raising the minimum wage, providing universal health care, raising SNAP benefits, um, removing barriers to participation that especially the Trump administration has thrown up. I mean, those are just a few things, along with affordable housing and child care and all those suite of programs that we all know about that people are struggling to cover because we don't have established governmental programs. And what you've uncovered for us, Andy, is problematic. You know, you're saying major corporations like Walmart and Amazon are profiting from hunger. So how do we fight powerhouses like that? Jeff Bezos is the richest man in the world. Who can break that wheel? I mean, I think it's incumbent upon us on a, on a lot of different levels. At one level, as supporters of our local charities, and as when we throw those few cans into the food drive, not to have illusions that we're really solving the problem. You know, we're, we're solving the problem for today, but we're not solving it for tomorrow. We need to make demands on those groups, on Feeding America, which is located in Chicago, on the Greater Chicago Food Depository, which is a wonderful organization, to be advocating more strongly for public policies that reduce hunger in the first place. And then we also need to be looking at other social movements. Uh, Reverend Barber has uh, implemented a, a Poor People's Campaign, kind of going back to the end of replicating what was happening in the 1960s. We need to be organizing amongst ourselves to make those changes. And I think we've taken a few steps uh, with this recent election at the electoral level, but we also need to be doing it yeah. at, the, at the social movement level. Now, you're the executive director of the nonprofit EcoFarm. So talk to us about the work that you do there and tell us how that contributes to food security. Yeah, I mean, EcoFarm has been around for about 40 years. Ecological Farming Association is a full name organization. It's based in California. The main thing that, it, that the organization has done is to promote organic agriculture and to promote a food system that is responsive to the small and medium-sized farmers. We organize an annual conference, which is going to take place virtually in January. I encourage everybody to show up to, to check it out. But, you know, the connections are that just as low-income communities are marginalized by the food system, just as they don't have grocery stores in their neighborhood or they're not receiving good wages. The same thing's happening with small farmers. They've been marginalized by the mainstream corporate food system. So we see those connections and are acting to support them in ways to be more successful and to create that thriving small farm sector in California in particular. That's Andy Fisher, executive director of the nonprofit EcoFarm and the author of the book Big Hunger, The Unholy Alliance Between Corporate America and Anti-Hunger Groups. Andy, thank you so much for your insight today. As we've looked at food insecurity this week, you just heard that small farmers have been marginalized by what our previous guest Andy Fisher just called the mainstream corporate food system. Now we'll discuss one group of those farmers who suffer injustice now and have for centuries. Today, black farmers make up just over 1% of America's more than 3 million farmers. This number doesn't come by chance. As we've discussed during the series, centuries of intentional policies and neglect led to where we are. For instance, during Reconstruction, newly freed slaves were promised 40 acres and a mule. But the Redemption and Jim Crow eras rolled back those efforts. 
Even during the New Deal, Southern Democrats forced President Franklin Roosevelt's hand in exempting agricultural and domestic workers from the bulk of benefits provided by the legislation. It was a backdoor way of denying black people rights and benefits without explicitly stating so. We're pleased to be joined by a leader in the movement to restore the power of self-determination to black farmers. Kamal Bell is CEO of Sankofa Farms. Kamal, welcome to Reset. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. And I really like the um, angle that we're talking about potential solutions. So I'm definitely excited to talk about that today. Absolutely. So important. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us about you, Kamal. Why did you choose farming as a career? So I'm actually from Durham, North Carolina, where we started the idea for the farm. And I started the farm when I learned about food deserts in college. I went to North Carolina Agricultural and Technical State University. And I noticed that there was a disparity between where our college was on the east side of Greensboro and then the disparity in in options to get healthy produce compared to the west side where um, UNCG, that's University of North Carolina Greensboro, and that's a PWI, predominantly white institution. And I started to question, like, why this existed. So as I started to find out more about food deserts, I then went into solution mode. So I was just like, you know what, I want to become a farmer to help alleviate the effects of food deserts. But I know I was naive to the fact that this issue is so large and it just isn't about the food. And that led me to start the farm and then add the educational component and intertwine that into the farm as well. So unpack that a little bit more for us. Give us a little bit more detail about Sankofa Farms and that educational component that you just mentioned. So Sankofa is a word that comes out of West Africa and it means to remember your ancestry as you move forward. In life. That's how we interpret it. But there are also uh, other meanings. It can also be interpreted as to go back and get. And we interpret as to go back and get our history, our African ancestry. And what I started to find out is that to really change anything in society, you have to have access to land. Land is that staple of power and that thing that um, allows you to be flexible and come up with solutions. So we decided to work with the youth of our community who also were somewhere affected by food deserts as well. And we decided to teach them and give them the foundation to take control of their destiny. So the land is the sign of taking back the control over your future and you being at the center pushing forward change. So when people look at food deserts and look at farming, they look at food as the subject. Well, we look at the student and our issues as a community as the subject. They're at the center of everything we do at the farm. And then we intersect with these other issues in the community as we look at ourselves and look at things that affect us. So you talk a lot about how this farming can really help the youth, but you also believe that farming can change the lives of black people specifically. You've called it before a revolution waiting to happen. Why? Yes. I look at that as every civilization starts around a reliable food source. So if we're going to take control of our communities, we're going to take control of a lot of the things that affect us as a people, we have to get back to the food and we have to get back to the land. And I think some of us, some people in our community, because of how we've been educated, we don't look at the land as being viable outside of us, like flipping homes and real estate. But the land can do all those things for you. But the fundamental component of being able to profit off of the land is being able to produce a good that can sustain you. That's the real profit. We have to stop looking at everything from a monetary sense. We have to look at it from being able to just survive. That's the fundamental basis of our existence, eating healthy food. So Mm -hmm. once we take care of that need, we can then move on to other issues that affect us. But the food is the biggest issue because then you look at our health long term. If you're going to have a revolution, you have to be healthy. I think we often forget that. If you want something to be long term, you have to be healthy. 
and then we can start building institutions that support and that aid us in solving other issues that affect our community. Let's talk policies for a little bit, because there's a new Senate bill called the Justice for Black Farmers Act, and it seeks to correct historic discrimination in the U.S. Department of Agriculture that's related to federal farm assistance and, and lending that caused black farmers to lose millions of acres of farmland. Can you talk about some of that history for us, Kamal, and give us your thoughts on the legislation? Uh, yes, and I just want to like to start by, there was an article that came out about us in reference to the Justice for Black Farmers Act, so I don't want people to think that we were consulted with creating it. We're just offering our perspective on it. Um, okay. So this act, I think, is a step in the right direction, but as far as correcting the negative effects that it's had on our community, I don't think anything can be proposed that really quantifies the injustices that we face here in America. But I do think that we can begin to look at the institutions here in America that have perpetuated this racism because it hasn't only been the USDA. There are things that happen on the micro level. Then you talk about the funding of 1890 land grants. Then we talk about health care. We talk about heirs' property. We talk about people having to put up their land or private institutions that stripped away the land from black people. We talk about the equipment that we weren't able to obtain. We talk about the education. We talk about youth programs. That's not even encompassing everything. Mm -hmm. These are just some of the things that we have faced in this country that the legislation could potentially put us on the right track. But we also have to look at how many African-American kids have lost the opportunity to learn about agriculture. Then we have to think about if we do get land, are we going to be afforded the resources to be 21st century farmers? Because that's something that's really affected black farmers in the past is us not having access to the latest technology. Mm -hmm. So we have to look at all of these different parameters and then say, okay, if we are afforded re-entry into this field on whose terms and what qualifications do we have to meet? Because there are qualifications where you may have to have agricultural experience. Well, we don't have farms. Our farms are as frequent and as common as they used to be. So how do we address all these issues? And I think this is something that is going to take decades and decades to really limit the effects of what we really face in this country. Just some additional context for our listeners who may not be familiar with the Justice for Black Farmers Act. The bill would create an annual $8 billion fund to purchase farmland on the open market and then grant it to black farmers. And the goal is to make 20,000 grants per year for nine years with maximum allotments of 160 acres. We're talking about Black-owned farms as a solution to food injustice with Kamal Bell. He's an African-American farmer and CEO of Sankofa Farms. So Kamal, how do we begin then to address this stigma that some Black people have about farming and agriculture that really comes from the legacy of slavery and sharecropping? Mm -hmm. I think the first, and this is why we teach from an Afrocentric standpoint at Sankofa, is that our involvement in agriculture started in Africa. So if we teach our youth that it starts with slavery, they're going to always correlate our existence in agriculture with slavery. And slavery, has, of course, has a negative connotation, has negative effects on our people. So we don't want our youth to go back to that point. We want them to say, hey, look, I want to learn about beekeeping. This is an example. I learned about beekeeping. I went to get about Angola, who was one of the largest explorers of beeswax in the early 17th century. I want to look at how when they were deciding where to take us from Africa, they were taking people who had an already agricultural, rich knowledge base. These are the people who they addressed. So what were the systems that we were maintaining in Africa before we come here to America? So when we want to look at and pinpoint our existence, we have to do it in Africa as it relates to us building civilizations, building communities, sustaining ourselves, 
And then we can then go down the line and say, okay, how do we adjust here? Then when we talk about the system of slavery, North American slavery, we then can look at the knowledge and we can look at the contributors, the people who brought this information with them to also go ahead and to put this system here into play. So for those of us who live in urban areas, Kamal, how can we participate? How can we help? That's a great question. And I think this is a complex question because then we come back to the whole acquisition of land. I think the first thing that we do is we start looking at the youth interest in agriculture. And that's going to be hard at first. But once we can then be able to connect these youth to farmers in the area, and Chicago will be a little bit difficult. I've been actually paying attention a lot to what's going on in Chicago. And um, it would take literally a coalition to come and identify properties. But I think the small garden system, the um, urban farming system, with a lot of these empty lots and abandoned lots in Chicago, vertical farming can be a way to incorporate youth. I also think in that we still need to connect the youth into these programs to larger farms. And the farms don't have to be necessarily black farmers. They just have to be people who are committed to exposing youth to these ideals. And then also it would take someone to show the youth that, hey, these skills that you're learning at the farm are applicable outside the farm. So an example, we are now showing our students how to fly drones. Mm. I didn't have an interest in it, but the students have an interest in aviation, so I got them a drone. So now when we're grabbing content on the farm, when we're doing projects, they're now able to learn how to fly drones, and they can use that outside of the farm. Another example, we have Bluetooth technology on the farm in reference to our bees. So our bees have hive skills on them, and we can use our phones to pull data off so then we can start going into data management. We right. can go into how to incorporate different aspects. The 21st century learning these STEM values. So we can't teach students just the bare bones of plant in the soil and it grows. There's the economic, there's the entrepreneurial. There's all these different facets of STEM aspects that have to intersect with agriculture to then get this new generation in as well. And that's today's Reset and part three of our series, Closing the Gap, Food Insecurity. If you missed parts one and two, you can go back and listen to those episodes in your feed. And tomorrow on the show, we've broken down the problem of what's driving food insecurity in Illinois. Now we're going to dive into solutions. What would it take to close the meal gap in Illinois? Check your feed for that conversation and the final part of this series tomorrow. But that's it for today. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Thanks for listening, and we'll meet again tomorrow. Do you need a break from the news? Well, my friend, Nerdette Podcast is here for you. Our show is all about delight. We laugh about what's happening in pop culture and feature thoughtful interviews with fascinating people. We even have a monthly book club that you can participate in. I could just go on and on about it. I loved this book. It was an experience, I'll tell you that. (laughs) I discovered authors I had never heard of, and I'm really happy that I did. Come hang out with us. Listen to Nerdette wherever you get your podcasts.